This week we have a new Parsha and a new villain. Jacob escapes from Esav, who wants to kill him. And over the course of our Parsha, he has to navigate the very tricky relationship with his uncle and his father-in-law, Laban. And Laban is a very interesting character. In effect, he is the antecedent of our nation. He's like the father-in-law of the Jewish people. Of course, he is the father of both Rachel and Leah. And in fact, the Midrash tells us that he's also the father, via a concubine, of Bilhah and Zilpah. So the four wives of Jacob all are the daughters of Laban. But he's portrayed as somewhat of a villain. And he is, at least according to one opinion of the Talmud, the grandfather of Bilam, of Balaam, of course, one of the worst enemies of the Jewish people. And what I want to do today is I want to examine what I think is perhaps, at least at first blush, an inconsistency in the Torah's portrayal of Laban. So, of course, Laban, he appears twice in extended narratives in the book of Genesis. Of course, in chapter 24, two weeks ago, we read Parshish Chayesara. Isaac needs a spouse, and Abraham hires his right-hand man, Eliezer, go travel to my family and go find a spouse for Isaac. And we know the story. Eliezer comes, and he arrives at the well, and he meets Rebecca. Eventually, he gets introduced to Rebecca's family, which consists of Laban, Rebecca's brother, and Besuel, which is Rebecca's father. And he has to negotiate to get them to agree to send Rebecca back home with him. And of course, the whole Parsha this week is dedicated to Laban. And if we look at his whole story, we look at his persona, we do see that he has several glaring flaws. So, for example, the Torah always highlights the fact that he has a rapacious desire for money. When he sees Rebecca and she's wearing the jewelry given to by Eliezer, he runs to go see if there's any jewelry for him. And when he meets Jacob in our Parsha, the verse says that he hugs him and he kisses him. And Rashi tells us that actually what Laban is doing here is he's expecting Jacob like Eliezer, to come with all kinds of money and all kinds of gems. But of course, Jacob arrives empty-handed. And the Midrash tells us that in fact, Jacob was laden with all kinds of gifts, but he was robbed. He was mugged along the way. So Laban sees Jacob coming and he's like, where's the money? Where's the gold? Where's the silver? Where's the jewels and diamonds? And he starts hugging him. And as he's hugging him, he's feeling, he's checking and then he kisses him, maybe he's hiding in his mouth. Laban is clearly portrayed, at least one of his flaws, is that he has an insatiable desire for money. And of course, he is also deceptive. He perpetrates this really dishonest switcheroo. He makes a deal with Jacob. I'm going to give you Rachel, my younger daughter. And after seven years of work, Jacob has fulfilled his part of the deal. And Laban renades and he supplants Leah instead of Rachel, despite all of Jacob's safety measures. And then when Jacob is hired to work for Laban, Laban consistently changes the terms. We're told that he changes the terms a hundred times. A deal with Laban 
It's not a deal. He retrades quite dishonestly. He is not exactly the model boss. Over the course of these six years, Laban changes the terms of Jacob's employment a hundred times, which is an average of once every three weeks. But nonetheless, Jacob becomes tremendously wealthy. So we see that Laban does have some quite discernible flaws, and I think he's also quite shameless. When Jacob awaits the next day and he discovers about the switcheroo, he runs to Laban, he demands an explanation, and Laban responds that, well, our custom is that we give first the older daughter than the younger daughter. Why didn't he tell me this seven years ago? That, of course, is not addressed by Laban. But he makes this shameless request. I'll give you Rachel as well, but you have to give me seven more years of work. Laban is full of guile. He is full of dishonesty. But Jacob is the absolute paragon of integrity, and he works for seven more years. And over the course of the 20 years living together, after Jacob essentially becomes wealthy and Laban feels that he lost out, Laban becomes resentful and angry and envious. And Jacob is concerned that Laban's going to seize his family, now comprised of four wives and 12 children. So Jacob has to flee overnight to run away from Laban. And Laban pursues. And there is a standoff. And thanks to miraculous divine intervention, Laban's worst impulses are quelled and they strike a deal, they set up a DMZ and each go their merry way. If we study the story of Laban, he clearly is a man with all kinds of serious character flaws. But if we examine his story carefully, we'll notice that he does have several redeeming qualities. For one, he seems to have sensitivity to matters of faith and to matters of hospitality. When Eliezer comes to go and bring Rivka, bring Rebekah back to Yitzchak, to Isaac, the verse tells us, this is chapter 24, verse 31, Laban says, come, the blessed one of God. Why are you standing inside? I have cleared out the home for you and I've made room for your camels. He is welcoming. He is inviting. He is invoked in the name of God. Rashi tells us that he also cleared out the idols, made room even for the animals. Laban seems to be a gracious and quite accommodating host. And Eliezer comes and he makes his pitch. And after he tells the whole story, Laban once again invokes God. This is chapter 24, verse 50. And Laban and Basul said, From Hashem, from God, this matter has come. It's clear that God is the one who is putting these two people, Isaac and Rebekah, together. We cannot speak to you, not good and not bad. Laban is telling us that this union of Isaac and Rebekah is God's handiwork. Laban is a believer. Moreover, the Talmud tells us that this story, this declaration of Laban is in fact one of the proofs from Scripture that it is God who makes 
matches. It is God who sets up this young man with this young woman. Laban clearly believed and embodied the fact that it is God who is orchestrating this union of Isaac and Rebecca. If it was fate, if it was all a show, then it wouldn't be featured in the verse, and the Talmud clearly would not use it as proof that indeed it is God behind matchmaking. So Laban is a believer. And in this week's parasha, when Laban wants to make an employment arrangement with Jacob, in chapter 30, verse 27, Laban says to Jacob, If I have found favor in your eyes, God has blessed me because of you. Again, Laban is attributing his material success to God. He freely tells Jacob, God has blessed me because of you. Moreover, it's noteworthy that two of Laban's blessings are featured in the Torah. In Parshas Chayesara, when Rebekah is about to go back with Eliezer and the Ten Camels back to Isaac, he gives Rebekah a blessing. Achotenu, our sister, you should become thousands and myriads. And in fact, this blessing is still used today. We still today recite Laban's blessing to brides. And when he finally amicably separates from Jacob, he blesses his children and his grandchildren, and that too is recorded in the Torah. Clearly, Laban is someone whose blessings mattered. So when we look at Laban, we try to evaluate him net-net, in aggregate, all told, bottom line, what would we say about Laban? Well, we'd acknowledge that he has some flaws, but he has some redeeming qualities. He's kind of a mixed bag. He's like uh, the rest of us. We have some good. We have some bad. It's kind of a mix. He was a believer. He's invoking God multiple times, but clearly he does struggle with idolatry. He's a bit greedy. He's a bit dishonest, but who's really perfect? It's hard to judge him. Maybe we give him a B minus. He's okay. He's tolerable. There's definitely some stuff to work on, but he has some really admirable traits worthy of emulation too, I think that would be a safe assessment of Laban if we were the ones who had to evaluate him. But it's really interesting that the Torah has a very different verdict for Laban. Besides for his two storylines in Genesis, Laban also makes a passing appearance in the book of Deuteronomy. And what we read is quite shocking. This is during the declaration of the first fruits. When you have a first fruit, you put it in a basket, bring it to Jerusalem. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 26. The verse says, you go to Jerusalem and you bring the fruits and you make a declaration and you say, the Aramean, which is Laban, he destroyed my forefather. What does this mean? Rashi says that when you're bringing these first fruits, you have to invoke the kindness of God. And you start with Laban. Laban tried to uproot it all. Now, this idea is actually 
featured also in the Haggadah. Every Passover, we read about Laban. And there is, again, a very shocking verse. We're talking about how God saves us. And in every generation, there's someone, there's some force, there's some people that tries to destroy us. But in every generation, the Almighty rescues us. And then we start talking about various times in history when our nation was in peril. And we start with Laban the Aramean. Look at what he tried to do to Jacob. Pharaoh in Egypt only decreed the death sentence on the males. In Egypt, Pharaoh wanted all the males to be thrown into the Nile. But Laban, he sought to uproot the entire people. We gave Laban a B-. minus In the Haggadah, and in, in Scripture and Deuteronomy, we're told that Laban is such a villain. You think Pharaoh's a villain? This is a super villain. And he's way worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh only wanted to kill the males, the women he was fine with. Laban wanted to destroy it all. And therefore, he's that much worse. So, of course, there's a lot of questions to ponder. You know, why are we starting... Haggadah, or this portion of the Haggadah with the threat of Laban, what's the relevance to the story of the Exodus and the Passover? Whoever thought of putting Pharaoh and Laban together, what an unusual duo. And just parenthetically, what this means is that, like we've spoken about in the past, the Egyptian experience was constructive. It seems like what's happening between Jacob and Laban is a mirror of what the Jewish people had to endure in Egypt. And thus, we must say, we must conclude that the tribulations that Jacob and his family had to endure with Laban, that was there, again, to be constructive and to make Jacob and his family emerge stronger from that experience. In fact, if we do examine these stories they do seem to parallel each other. So, for example, at the end of our parsha, Jacob absconds from Laban. And the verse tells us in chapter 31, verse 22, it's the third day Laban's informed that Jacob has fled. He mobilizes his brothers and they chase him down. And Laban finally catches up to Jacob on the seventh day. Now compare that to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 14, You look at chapter 14, verse 5, and especially in Rashi, it says the same thing. Three days after the Jewish people escape, Pharaoh's informed, and he chases them down, and he catches up to them on day 7, and that's when the splendid of the sea happened. What an interesting parallel. We're told in the sources that Laban and Pharaoh have some overlap. They're similar kinds of villains, it's just that Laban's way worse. And here we see parts of the story of Laban and Pharaoh seem to be identical. It's almost as if we could say that Jacob's escape from Laban is almost like a dry run of the Exodus. Ain't that interesting? And it makes you wonder, is there perhaps a dry run of the splitting of the sea, of the war with Amalek? of the Sinai revelation? 
Is it possible that Jacob is him and his family setting the tone, laying out the pattern for what's going to happen to the nation at large? What an interesting question to ponder. But back to Laban. We gave him a B minus. And the Torah views him as a worse villain than Pharaoh, a genocidal maniac who murdered babies by throwing them into the river and by cementing them into buildings. What about Laban's interaction justifies him being classified as a worse threat to the Jewish people, someone who's trying to uproot the entire nation? How can we say that Laban's worse than Pharaoh? Yes, he committed some crimes. He swapped the daughters and he changed the terms a hundred times and he tried to chase down Jacob who was slain from him. It is bad. We're not trying to justify it. But is it worse than Pharaoh? He's a deceptive guy. He's tricky. There's some chicanery. Pharaoh did genocide. I don't believe there's a threat of violence in Laban's behavior. Yet we're told that the threat to our nation that was posed by Laban was worse than the threat posed by Pharaoh. Laban wanted to uproot everything. And the question I want to examine is what is so dangerous and destructive about Laban that warrants such a verdict? And I think there's probably several answers to this question. You know, we could say quite simply, hey, what were his plans? He was going to overtake Jacob and had God not stopped him, he would have hijacked the children and send Jacob empty-handed and penniless after 20 plus years of back-breaking labor and family building. He would have kidnapped the wives and the children and the Jewish nation would have been destroyed and prevented from getting off his feet. I think that's a simple answer. I want to suggest a new approach, maybe with a few interlocking parts. So the first idea is an idea, I think it's really obvious, but it's important to reinforce, and that is that a spiritual threat is much more harmful and much more lasting than a physical threat, than a threat to our body. I remember many years ago hearing a lecture, a discourse, and the speaker made the provocative statement that Stalin was worse than Hitler. So, of course, they were both tyrants and both absolute terrible people, and everyone knows that. But to say that Stalin is worse than Hitler, that's a pretty strong statement. And he explained The Nazis, of course, wanted to murder as many Jews as possible. And when a Jew, God forbid, is murdered, it's a terrible tragedy. But we believe that although his body is extinguished, the soul lives on. But the communists, they ridiculed religion as opiate of the masses. They tried to destroy the soul And that would harbor eternal consequences. So I think one perspective we have to have with this comparison between Laban and Pharaoh is to say that Pharaoh wanted to attack us physically. Of course, that's dreadful. But Laban wanted to attack us spiritually. I think that's definitely a component of the answer. 
But in addition, I think that the state of the Jewish people now as a small family, this is when the nation is getting started. This is the formative years of the Jewish people. We're at the nascent stages laying down the foundations, the pillars of this nation. The 12 sons of Jacob are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. Now it's a family burgeoning into a tribe and eventually a nation. The formative years of any enterprise are the most crucial. The beginning of the initiative, that's the most important part. This is the time when the entire initiative is vulnerable. Any disruption can permanently destroy it. Once there's momentum, you have some energy already, then maybe you have some more wherewithal to withstand more adversity and bounce back quickly. If you take a rocket and try to send it into space and you're a little bit off at the beginning, once you shoot that into space, you could be, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, millions of miles away off target because you were a millimeter off at the beginning. Laban is coming to attack the Jewish people at a different time in their development. And he wants to snuff out the spark of the Jewish people before it picks up steam. And I think that too is part of the answer. But here's the insight. The Talmud tells us that scripture proves that it is God who puts a husband and wife together. And what's the proof from the Torah? The proof from the Torah is from Laban. Laban declares that it's God who's putting Isaac and Rebekah together. Laban is the poster child. He is the author of this quote that God determines who is supposed to marry who. Laban taught us this idea. He's the father of this idea. Yet in his own character, in his own behavior, he repudiates his own teaching. What does he do? He tries to tamper with God's plan. God's plan is that Jacob marries Rachel. And what does Laban do? In opposition to the very teaching that Laban himself authored, he swaps out the daughters. It's kind of mind-boggling. Out of all the personalities in the entire Torah, the Talmud, and this is in the book of Moat on page 18b, it's brought down also in the Midrash, the Talmud tells us that Laban is the one that teaches us this idea. And specifically the guy who tells us that it's God who puts people together, he's the one who hypocritically is trying to intervene and interfere with a divine plan. How does Laban do that? How does he justify his hypocrisy? So here's what I want to speculate. Maybe we could say that Laban was very clever and he said like this, God's in charge. But by declaring that God's in charge and God's going to decide who marries who, Laban argued 
that that means that he has carte blanche to do whatever he wants. There's no free will. Free will has been obviated. God's in charge after all. So who's Jacob going to marry? Whoever he marries, it turns out that that is the will of God. And therefore, what does he do? He takes Leah. And as a big believer that God's in charge, he says, I'm going to give Leah. And you see, if Jacob marries Leah, then God's in charge. It was the will of God. Laban was someone who was indeed a believer. But his faith had a serious flaw. He was someone who used his faith to reinforce his own biases, to hammer home his own personal interests. He used his faith as spiritual cover to justify doing things that were corrupt. This is really dangerous. Because the essence of our religion and the essence of our faith is to use Torah to refine ourselves, to develop self-control, to fix all of our character defects, to become someone who's not guided by biases. Laban is the exact opposite. He is someone who knew very clearly, in fact, he's the one who teaches it, that it's God who's in control. And that is what he used to reinforce his deplorable character, being greedy and wanting Jacob to marry Leah and then squeezing out seven more years in an improper way. So he is using his faith, instead of using it to fix his character, he is using it to further entrench his negative character. He teaches us God's in control, which is, of course, an incredible insight. But he uses that for the opposite intent of Torah. He uses it to swindle, to cheat, to deceive, and to lie. And this extends to his financial dealings as well. He freely acknowledges that it is God who has enriched him. And again, this appears in the Torah. It's evidence that he really believed it. Yet, he changes the terms of the deal with Jacob a hundred times. He retrades, he reneges upon his obligations, he tries to cut every corner, he tries to steal from Jacob. This is another example of Laban's corruption. He's using his knowledge of God precisely for the opposite intent of what its true purpose is. Instead of the knowledge of God compelling him to refine himself, He uses it to justify his predatory treatment of his employee and son-in-law of Jacob. He says, well, it's God who decides, and therefore I can do whatever I want, because after all, whatever happens is the will of God. And I find it interesting that our sages tell us that Bilaam is the grandson of Laban. If you look at Bilaam's character in the book of Numbers, it seems like he's the same way. He was granted unprecedented insight and prophecy, rivaled only by Moshe, but he knew the heavenly knowledge, and instead of using it to perfect himself, he used it to further reinforce his negative character. Our sages tell us in the book of Yoma, page 72b, that Torah can act as an elixir of life, 
or as a potion of death. It could be Sam Chaim, a potion of life, or Sam Misa, a potion of death. And those two are literally opposites. How can one thing, the same thing, be an elixir of life or a potion of death? The answer is that Torah can be misdirected, can be misappropriated. Torah is about us saying we want the Almighty's guidance to improve ourselves. And the second we start off and say, no, I want to use the Torah for my will, to achieve my preconceived, pre-desired result. I want to shoehorn the Torah to conform with my will. I want to adapt the Torah to what I want to reinforce my negative character, my biases, instead of us trying to fit in to God's prescription. That's the corruption of Torah. And used in that circumstance, Torah indeed is a potion of death. Laban was very dangerous. Everything he did wrong, he could provide you justification, chapter and verse, for his corrupt behavior. He knew it. The Torah tells us clearly that he was someone who really had developed his understanding of faith. But he twisted and contorted it to conform with his biases and his base desires. And such a force threatens to uproot everything. Pharaoh, terrible guy, but he was a total heathen, a total idolater, a demigod, a genocidal maniac, a dreadful person. But Laban is even more dangerous. And yes, we see many admirable qualities in Laban. But his relationship with faith is exactly the opposite of the intent. And the Torah, the knowledge for him, was a potion of death. We see Jacob. He's the model of what it's really supposed to look like. Jacob makes all his contingency plans. He prepares for every possible eventuality. And nevertheless, things backfire and Leah is supplanted for Rachel. How does he respond? He responds calmly. He recognizes that this is the will of God. He acknowledges that this is obviously what the Almighty wanted and he adapts accordingly. Jacob's faith is determining his behavior and not vice versa. And you contrast that with Laban. Laban is changing the deal a hundred times. He's doing that because he is unwilling to accept the message of God. The idea that God's sending him a message that he needs to change his behavior, that never occurs to Laban. And this is a very valuable lesson to us. You know, the Torah, of course, is bursting with insights, with wisdom, but it's a double-edged sword. It could change our lives. It can improve our lives. It could get us to live for a higher purpose, to live a meaningful life. It could get us to improve ourselves, to refine our character, to develop self-control. It's the best formula for character improvement. It's the elixir of life. But there is a scenario where Torah not only doesn't help us, it's deadly. It's harmful. It's a potion of death. 
And Laban is the prime example of that. He was a developed scholar of theology and is justly credited as such. But he never said, let me use this to change myself. Let me use this to improve myself. Rather, he co-opted Torah for his own nefarious uses. He used his knowledge for evil. And that influence is very dangerous. Because such a person is influential. After all, the person's a scholar. But following them results in imbibing the potion of death. And had Laban influenced Jacob, had Jacob allowed himself to be corrupted by Laban, indeed the Jewish nation, the nation that stands for absorbing God's message in Torah, the nation would not have gotten started. We would have been uprooted. And we thank God every year on Pesach. Not only did he save us from terrible people like Pharaoh, but even people who have subtle danger that doesn't seem to be immediately clear, people like Laban, who are much more dangerous, the Almighty saves us from him as well. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. What's the A and Q for this week? So the Parsha ended off last week with Asaph being hell-bent on murdering Jacob, and Jacob flees to Haran. And in Ashley's Parsha, when Jacob returns, now he has 12 sons and four wives. Now he has 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter, and he has four wives. And he has Joseph, who is Asaph's kryptonite. And he has an encounter with Asaph, and he has to navigate the very tricky meeting. He prays, he prepares for war, he makes contingency plans. But here's the question. Why doesn't Asaph pursue Jacob when he's vulnerable? Why does he go after him to Haran? So you may suggest, well, he didn't know where he was, but he did know. He did know that Isaac told Jacob, I don't want you to marry a Canaanite. Go marry one of your cousins, one of the daughters of Laban. And if Jacob could find his way to Laban, certainly you would imagine, Asaph could have found his way to Laban as well. But it seems like there's also a pattern. Just as Asaph didn't pursue Jacob in Haran, similarly, the nation of Asaph's grandchild Amalek the nation that maintains this fiery passion to try to kill the Jewish people, they don't attack the Jewish people in Egypt. They wait for them to be on the doorstep of Israel, and that's when they attack. Like Esau, they don't attack when we're in Egypt, when you would imagine we're like sitting ducks. They only wait both Esau and Amalek, to attack us when we're entering or about to enter the land of Israel. And my brother-in-law, Shmuley Botnik, he added, Haman, the heir of Esau and Amalek, he only attacks the Jewish people in Persia at the twilight period of the Persian-slash-Mede exile when the Jewish people are about to re-enter the land. And also in modern times, the Nazis, who from everything we know about Amalek, clearly qualify, they attack the Jewish people when we are about to enter the land. 
And the question is why? This particular force, that's the antithetical force of the Jewish people, it seems like there's a pattern. They only attack us when we're about to enter the land or we are on the doorstep of entering the land. And the question is, why? If you have an answer, email me, rabbi.com. Now, last week, we had a question as to why Jacob had to get the blessings in a deceptive manner, in this circuitous manner. And again, like we do every week, I got loads and loads of responses. And by the way, if you give me a response, you don't get a response back. What I try to do is I bash them together, all the emails. And before I record the next week's podcast, I made sure I answer all the people that answered the previous week's A&Q. So if it's been four, five, six days since you, since you sent the email, I'm just waiting to do it all together at once because it's just more efficient for me. So the question is why? And I got a bunch of answers. Again, the audience that we have at the Parsha Podcast is just the best, the best one that there is. So the answers were interesting and, and provocative and insightful and just wonderful in every way. But some of the themes that appeared in multiple responses is the idea of, of Jacob being forced, being trained, if you will, to utilize the good, so to speak, of Esau for its intended purpose. And the idea being that, of course, we know that we have a Yetzer Tov, a good inclination, that's trying to motivate us to do mitzvos and to connect to God. And of course, we have an evil inclination. And that's trying to push us away from God. And when we say the Shema, and we recite the first verse of the first paragraph of the Shema, we say that we have to love God with all our hearts. Mechol levavcho, with all our hearts, multiple hearts. And the question is, you only have one heart, so what's it talking about? And the answer says Rashi, based upon the Talmud, the book of Brachos, that we have to love God with both our good inclination and our bad inclination. And Jacob is someone who really perfected worshiping God, loving God with his good inclination. But there's one aspect of his life that really has yet to be consecrated for the worship of God, and that is the evil inclination. And thus, Jacob needs to be trained and to be guided and to be coaxed to do something which is against his nature, that he really resisted, he didn't want to do it. And that is to say, act like Esau, employ, deploy your evil inclination for its intended purpose. And thus he does it based upon the instruction of his mother for the good reason that, the vital reason that it needed to be done. I think there's an aspect of this that he literally dresses up like Esau. He puts on Esau's clothing. It's almost as if Jacob had a role to fill and Esau had a role to fill, but Esau was derelict in his duty and Jacob has to fulfill not only his role, but Esau's role too. And in this week's parsha, Rashi tells us that Jacob and Esau were twins. According to one opinion, Rachel and Leah were also twins. And the older one of these cousins, 
Esav was supposed to marry Leah. And the younger one, Jacob, was supposed to marry Rachel. And thus, there is an idea that Leah was destined for Esav. But Jacob ended up with her. And that's the idea. That Esav had a role to play. And like we spoke about last week, he failed. And who picked up the slack? Who fulfilled the role of Esav for him? That's Jacob. And that's why he ends up with the intended, so to speak, Leah, the intended of Esav. And like we mentioned last week, there was a second Esav who came from Jacob. And the way things worked out is that Jacob ended up fulfilling both of them. It's a very tantalizing question. What's going to be in the end of days in the Messianic era? Is there going to be a reclamation project for Esav? That is a very interesting question that maybe we'll talk about sometime in the future. I thank you all for listening. I hope everyone has an amazing Thanksgiving and a fantastic and fabulous Shabbos and a hearty Mazel Tov again to Michael Rosen. And thank you so much for your sponsorship. If you want to sponsor an upcoming episode of The Parsha Podcast, or if you want to reach out with any questions or any comments, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.